So good to see you today. My name is Pete, and if you've got a Bible, let's go to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 3, and we'll camp out there uh, this morning. Um, before we dive in, uh, I want to just help orient us a little bit around the liturgical calendar, the church calendar that we as Antioch have been following for the last uh, several years. It looks something like this. Exactly. And um, if you remember, way back at the end of November, we entered into the season of Advent together, which is four weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas. Um, from Christmas, we go into a season called Epiphany. And then from there, somewhere February and March, we enter into Lent, which is seven weeks that lead us up to Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter. And then we walk through the season of Easter together, um, during which time we spent in the Lord's Prayer. And finally, it kind of all came together last Sunday, which is Pentecost Sunday. Um, today, we kind of start what's traditionally known as uh, ordinary time that will last us through uh, most of the summer and the fall until we start the cycle over again um, in November. And so um, for me, this has become a really helpful and important way um, of following Jesus together in community. And this, the idea is that we're really uh, measuring time according to the story of Christ and his people. And we walk through his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so every year we kind of have this rhythm that we get to follow, and then summer is kind of just... Ordinary, which I love that they call it that. Um, but today is not one of the major uh, holidays in the church calendar, but a significant one known as Trinity Sunday. And so um, the, the scripture today, as well as the teaching, um, are, are going to kind of center us into the reality that the God of the Bible is a God who is both three and one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three are active in this world, in this mission of reconciling all things um, back to God. And so uh, we'll, uh, we'll spend some time talking about the Trinity this morning, but also next week, as you saw in the announcements, is our annual baptism celebration down at the river. One week from today, we'll have a potluck and a big party and uh, do some baptisms in the river. And so this morning, we want to specifically focus in on this uh, Christian practice, sacrament and symbol uh, that we call baptism. And for those of you that are still um, preparing or thinking about getting baptized uh, this next week, it'll help clarify maybe some of your questions. But for all of us as followers of Jesus, this baptism thing is actually central to our identity, not just something that we did once a long time ago, but it continues to shape and inform who we are in Christ. So um, that's what we're going to be doing uh, just for this morning. Next week, we're going to start a new teaching series, Walking Through the Epistle of James. And uh, for most of the summer, we'll go uh, section by section through James, and I'm really excited to dive into that with you guys. So that's next week. But for this morning, we'll be in Luke. Uh, uh, chapter 3. And um, I just want to focus in on a few verses, starting in verse 21 of Luke 3. It says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Uh, we'll pause there. Dudes that were at the men's retreat last weekend, I know it's the same passage. It's not the same message. Don't worry. Uh, there's just so much good stuff here. I can't, 
can't get to all of it. So uh, the narrator in Luke's gospel tells us that around the age 30, give or take two or three years, Jesus, who up until this point had lived most of his adult life in the city of Capernaum, goes to the Jordan River. And at the Jordan River, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, is baptizing people, calling people to repentance, which is a word that means to rethink who's God around here. And Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Spirit descends, the Father speaks words of love and affirmation, and then we're told from there at the beginning of the next chapter that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And after 40 days of praying and fasting, Jesus then returns to Capernaum where he begins uh, his ministry. And so John's baptism is a baptism that is meant to be a foretaste of what's about to happen next in the story. The Messiah King, the long-awaited promised one, the ruler of Israel, God's true king was coming soon. And John was clued in to the way this story was unfolding. And so he's calling the Jewish people to a baptism of repentance, to change our mind about who is God around here, and to prepare ourselves and to consecrate ourselves for the coming of God's king. Now, here's what's interesting. Baptism was a form of ceremonial bathing or cleansing that was very common amongst the Jewish people uh, at this time. In fact, most Jewish people or Jewish families had what's called a mikvah in their home. And a mikvah is basically a ritual bathtub, a ceremonial uh, tub of water where on a regular basis, if not daily, the Jewish people would descend the steps of the mikvah and cleanse themselves ceremonially. Um, There's a picture of one that uh, I saw recently, for those of us that were in Israel last month, this mikvah in particular was uh, in the city of Magdala, which is a recently excavated city, um, which is a really fascinating place to be. Mary Magdalene means Mary of Magdala. And so this is the town where she came from, and almost certainly uh, a town where Jesus would have spent uh, a significant amount of time teaching and preaching. And so you see these, for those of us in Israel, we see these mikvahs all over the place in all the different homes. And then there's some kind of public community ones as well and those that are at the synagogue. And so on a regular basis, um, the Jewish people would descend the steps into the mikvah and do this cleansing or ceremonial bath. Our uh, Jewish tour guide in Israel, a guy by the name of Avi, uh, calls these what, Israel folks? Jew koozies. So <laughs> they are everywhere. Um, so just if you don't remember mikvah, you'll remember Jew koozies. <laughs> the idea of a ceremonial bathing or a purifying bath that represented the washing away of sin was super common, and many Jews would practice this on a regular basis. So baptism as a thing in and of itself wouldn't be strange, but there's a few things about John's particular baptism in this specific uh, story that really are fascinating. And so um, the fascinating thing to me about what John is doing here is where this baptism takes place. So he's not in the city, and he's not at the synagogue. He's not up at Jerusalem where there's public places to do this kind of cleansing ritual bath. But instead, he goes out into the wilderness to a fairly remote place on the Jordan River. 
And the place where John is baptizing is the exact same place where the story that Katie just read for us went down in Joshua chapter 3. It's the same place where God had led his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt into the wilderness. And most of us remember that that exodus happened through the parting of the Red Sea, right? And they left Egypt, go through the sea, and end up in the wilderness, but that's not their final destination. God is calling them back into the promised land after years of slavery and exile, and the way that they cross from the wilderness back into the promised land is through the parting of the Jordan River, this miraculous feat that God does to deliver his people into the land that he had prepared for them. And so six centuries before the time of Christ, there had been an exile. Israel was forced f- away from their land, but, and now they had returned, but it wasn't really a true return because Israel, though they occupied their land, didn't really have a king. Yeah, they had these Herod guys that were really puppets of Rome, but they didn't have a true Jewish king to rule over them and make them a people. And so what John is doing is so fascinating. He's going back and reenacting the story of God bringing his people into the promised land for the first time. As he's baptizing, a baptism of repentance and preparation in the Jordan River, it's the exact same spot where God had caused his people to be able to walk through the waters of the Jordan and end up back in the promised land. And so what he's doing is similar to, say, a group of U.S. Americans decided that Our country has gotten so out of whack and off the rails. What we need to do in a form of symbolic or you could even say prophetic protest is we're going to go way back to the beginning. We're going to go back to Plymouth Rock and we're going to dress up like pioneers and all that stuff and we're going to set up a a ship out in the Atlantic and we're going to approach the east coast of the United States as if we were approaching it for the first time, as if we were reenacting our first arrival on this country. And it would be kind of this symbolic or prophetic way of saying, we need a fresh start. We need to go back to the beginning and try this whole experiment over and do it in a different way. So this is what John's doing, essentially. It's a political statement. It's a prophetic symbol that as he baptizes these Jewish people who are awaiting their Messiah in the Jordan River, he's saying there is a new exodus and a new arrival into God's new world that's coming soon. And so every baptism for us today and for ever since the time of Christ has been a form of this new exodus, God's deliverance of his people from, from slavery and from sin, as well as every baptism is a new entrance into the promised land, a land of freedom and forgiveness in Christ. So every baptism, you might say, is a spiritual incorporation into the new Israel. And an Israel that is no longer defined by ethnicity or geography or Torah observance or circumcision or any of the other things that used to be the marks of who belonged to the people of God. He's saying there's a new Israel that is defined by faith in the Messiah, by baptism in the water, and by loyalty to Christ. And this is the new Israel that Paul would call 
the body of Christ or the new humanity. And so now for us, thousands of years later, for those of us that are followers of Jesus and have been baptized, we rarely think back to the significance of that moment when we followed Jesus into the waters of baptism, when we were incorporated into this new Israel, when we were adopted into this new family and included as part of this new humanity. But it is one of is the most significant moment in our lives to be baptized. And it's a big deal. So many of you know that Jen, my wife Jen and I were both born in foreign countries. She's from Canada, I'm from Texas. And several, <laughs> several years ago after we got married, uh, Jen went through the process of becoming a U.S. citizen. And so she goes through this whole naturalization process where throughout the process she has to swear off all allegiances to Canada or any other country and, and become a U.S. citizen. And she studies all the different questions for the test about branches of government and that sort of thing. Most of us couldn't get them right, but Jen studied and did it, did it really well. And then she had this little citizenship ceremony where she waves her little American flag and saw a personal greeting from George W. Bush. And, um, and so she's now American. And in a lot of ways, uh, a baptism is a naturalization ceremony into the kingdom of God. It's that moment where we swear off all other allegiances to the empire, to the system that revolves around self and selfishness. It's an, a time where we pledge our allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone, and we are incorporated into his family and into this new humanity. And so when Jesus is baptized, he's participating in this. He's entering in to the story as a human being. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and there's something significant. Can you think of another story in the Bible that has to do with water and a dove showing up? Noah. This is Noah's dove, I like to think. This is the story where Noah gets on an ark with his family, and he gets on in one world, and he gets off in a whole new world, that everything has been cleansed, everything has been made new, that there's been a recreation, so to speak. He goes through the water, and he gets out, and he releases a dove three times. First, he releases a dove, and it comes back, meaning there was nowhere for it to land. Secondly, he releases a dove, and it comes back later holding an olive branch a sign of shalom, of peace, of new beginnings. And then he releases it a third time and the dove n never comes back again until Luke chapter three, same dove, I guarantee it shows up. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there's something significant happening here, right? This story in the author of Luke brilliantly weaves together all of these narratives to show that Jesus is doing something huge by identifying himself with humanity. So not only are we identified with Christ in baptism, but he identifies himself with us in his baptism. In Matthew's account of the baptism, John is reluctant to baptize Jesus. John says, you should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. But John didn't get what was going on here. It's not that Jesus needed baptism, it's that baptism needed Jesus. 
In his baptism, Jesus made the waters of baptism sacred and holy. And so every time a believer is baptized, we are following Jesus on his journey of identifying with humanity, but then receiving this identity from the Father by the Spirit. And so what you see in baptism and the way that we do it particularly is in immersion, there's a picture or a symbol of death. We follow Jesus in saying that as we go under the water, we are crucified and buried with him. We are dead in our sins, but then we are raised up back out of the water, resurrected new life in Christ. And so every time we perform a baptism as a church, we are reenacting this gospel story of death and resurrection and new life and new identity. And so um, if you look at some of the ancient icons depicting the baptism of Christ, uh, a lot of them, like the one you can kind of see in the background there, have the same composition. But this one in particular, next one, Johnny, sorry, um, I thought was really fascinating. This is an ancient Orthodox icon of Christ's baptism, but what you'll notice is that there's no water at all. In fact, the water is simply represented by death by suffering, by the grave. And so the iconographer doing visual theology here is helping us to understand something about the significance and the symbolism of Christ's baptism. That this is not just a cleansing ritual bath, but this is actually a symbol of his very death. And so when Jesus goes into the baptism waters, he makes them clean. He purifies them. And when Jesus goes into death, death dies. He fills death with himself. And so what this means is that when we, those who are in Christ, die, and we all will one day, we don't meet death, we meet Jesus. And this is why a lot of the New Testament writers, instead of speaking of Christian death, they speak of falling asleep in Christ. That Christ has filled death with himself. And the greatest threat to humanity has been neutralized. He has victoriously defeated all sin and death. And so when we die, we don't meet death, we meet Jesus there. Because his death has now become our death. Now, here's what's interesting. If you keep, continue on in the passage we were looking at, um, starting in verse uh, thir- uh, sorry, 23, it moves into this genealogy that uh, Jesus was the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi. Definitely not going to read all of them, but look at where it goes as you get down to verse 38. He goes back 75 generations. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the Son of God. So Luke is doing something really fascinating here. He tells the story of Jesus, yes, named by the Father as his Son with whom he, whom he is well pleased and with whom he, who he loves. But there's something even bigger happening here. Jesus is doing more than just being baptized. Jesus is becoming the new Adam. 
In verse 38, we're told that Adam is the son of God. Up in verse 22, we've been told that Jesus is the son of God. So Adam, or in Hebrew, Adam, simply means mankind or humanity. And so Jesus is the son of God, but he's also becoming the new Adam. Meaning, we know that there's something wrong with this world. Regardless of your faith convictions or religious uh, beliefs, we all know that this world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And we also know that humanity has gone wrong. There's something wrong with the human heart. Like, how is it possible that in 2019, we still have war? How is it possible that we still have terrorism? How is it possible that we still have racism? How is it possible that there's still those living in extreme poverty? Like, with all of our evolution, technologically and scientifically, and all the thinking, and all the writing, and all the research, and all the effort that's gone into the human project, how is the world still so messed up? How is humanity still so broken? How am I still so messed up? We understand that there's something wrong with the world. It's almost like it's cursed. And it's almost like humanity is central to that and somehow needs to be rebooted, restarted, resurrected. So what does God do about it? He sends Jesus to be the new Adam to inaugurate a new humanity. And so Moses, who had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, he dies, and then he passes leadership to Joshua, who 40 years later brings Israel into the Promised Land. And they come to the place in the Jor- at the Jordan River that's directly opposite of the city of Jericho. And Joshua commands the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant to step into the river. And as soon as their feet touch the water, it, the water starts piling up. All right, I want to pause there in the story because I've got a couple of videos I want to show you from when I was at the Jordan River last month. And there, it's now become an amazing place where people, Christians from all over the world, from all different traditions, come to be baptized in this, probably not in the exact same place, but in the exact same river. And so I've got two. They're about 20 seconds long. I just shot them on my phone. The first is what I'm guessing is a group of Russian Orthodox Christians that have come to be baptized in the Jordan River. So, Johnny, roll that one real quick. The next group, which is just uh, at the top of the picture, is a group of Ethiopian Christians. I want to show you their baptism. I I don't know. You can choose your group. I know which one I want to be part of. 
But you know what I love? I love that they're both there. Different colors, different cultures, different languages, even different traditions within the, within the Christian faith. But in this one spot, this symbolism of there is a new humanity that Jesus is bringing about. There is a new family that's not primarily uh, made up by one ethnic or race or ethnicity or race or, or anything like that. But stoic Russians and crazy Ethiopians somehow who would never get along in the wild become brothers and sisters in their baptism, in the family of God. It was a beautiful moment to observe. So back to the Jordan, and the story that Katie read for us in Joshua chapter 3 tells us that as the priests followed Joshua's command, and before the water had stopped flowing, they stick their toes in as a step of faith, meaning it would be easy if they could see the path of dry land, but God asked them to step in as the water was still flowing, and listen to what he says. It says, now the Jordan was at flood stage, all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge, and the water from upstream stopped flowing, and it piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam, or Adam. Nineteen miles upstream from Jericho, the water piles up, and it's incredible symbolism here. That first, who is it that's leading this charge in, jo in Joshua? Well, his name is Joshua, or they would pronounce it Yeshua, which we know is exactly the way Jesus would have pronounced his own name. Jesus and Joshua, same name. And so here we have Yeshua rolling the waters, not just a little ways back, not just barely wide enough so that Israel can pass through, but 19 miles away, and he rolls it all the way back to Adam, which is the exact symbol of what needs to happen, that we need things to be rolled all the way back to the very beginning so we can get a new start. We know there's no simple fixes when it comes to the deep curse of the world. We need a new Adam. We need a new humanity. We need a new life. So how's that going to happen? John is baptizing at the exact same spot. And just as in the days of Joshua, when the, when the waters rolled back to Adam, we're given the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam. Just brilliant stuff on Luke's part. And this story ends up being all about the new Adam who would rescue humanity, give us a new, be new beginning and a new future. And it's all about Jesus, who's the new everything. Everything gets a new start in Jesus. Is that good news? Do you ever feel like you could use a new start, a new beginning? That's what Christ comes and he does in individuals, in families, in churches, in communities, in cities, in nations, and one day he's going to do for all of creation. So you could say it like this, that Jesus is the new Noah, bringing his family through the waters into a new world. Jesus is the new Joshua, rolling sin and death all the way back to Adam. And Jesus is the new Adam, who becomes the head 
of a new humanity. Seventh century church father Maximus the Confessor, which is a sweet name, right? <laughs> Puts it this way, that Christ has given us an entirely new way to be human. P. Kelly, the Confessor, puts it this way. Jesus didn't come to make us Christian. Jesus came to make us human. It wasn't primarily about starting a new religion. He was about launching a new humanity where we can be restored back to right relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and the rest of creation. Now, this work isn't done yet. As we all know, the world's still broken. We're still broken. But this kingdom has been inaugurated. This reality has had its seeds planted in the soil beneath our very feet. In this world, God hasn't given up on this project. God hasn't given up on humanity, and he was not giving up on you. There's a new thing bursting forth, a new story that's being written. The one last thing I want to observe in this text in Luke, <clears throat> it says that as he was praying in verse 21, Heaven was opened. In this new humanity, in this new reality called the kingdom of God, we live under an open heaven. Sometimes it feels like heaven is closed off. Sometimes it feels like God is distant and unknowable unperceivable, unreachable. Sometimes it feels like heaven is closed, but in Christ, as he ushers in this new reality, heaven is opened, and heaven and earth are becoming one in Jesus. And because of who Jesus is as the Son of God and the Son of Adam, we now are invited to participate in this whole new reality, in this whole new humanity, where we have an open heaven above us, meaning immediate and direct 24-7 access to the Father of Jesus. And our prayers can go up, our hope can go up, our laments can go up, our cries can go up, but we also see that an open heaven means that the voice of the Father and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit are coming down, raining down, shining through the clouds. And it doesn't always feel that way, and we don't always experience it, but the reality is that by faith, we follow Jesus into a world where heaven is open today. Now, of course, the language of up and down is symbolic. But the picture is there. The God in Christ is inviting us into a new world with him. Where it's not he's way out there and we're down here, but he has come to us in Christ. He has become our father and he has given us the same spirit that Jesus has. And so in baptism, we participate in this symbol and in this sacrament at one, one time in our lives. And maybe you've done it as a child um, maybe you did it when you first came to faith in Jesus. But you only need to be baptized once. In fact, there's no record in the scripture of somebody being baptized more than once. 
And so if you are a follower of Jesus who has not been baptized, um, I want you to seriously consider taking the step of faith and obedience and following Christ into the water of baptism. To join yourself, to be joined yourself to him and to his new humanity. And I want you to really pray about that this week. I would love to celebrate with you your <clears throat> naturalization ceremony into the kingdom of God. And there's no test even. That's the crazy part. So baptism is something that Christians do once. There's another uh, traditionally agreed upon sacrament or means of grace within Christianity, and that's the, the communion table. And the communion table is the place that we come regularly, repeatedly. Here at Antioch, we offer the bread and the cup weekly. So baptism is once, and communion happens over and over and over again. And it's here at the table where we are reminded of our baptismal identity, where we receive Christ again, where we stand under open heavens, and we commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We receive this new identity washing over us again and again and again. And in baptism, we go into the waters of Christ, but in communion, the life of Christ comes into us. We are in him. He is in us. And so I want to invite you this morning under an open heaven to come and to receive life with Jesus. And if you are somebody that needs to be baptized, and the Bible has no category for an unbaptized Christian, never existed, then I would love to meet with you afterwards. I'll be down front. You can come, and uh, we'd love to chat with you, me or one of the other pastors. So. so this is what we're celebrating next Sunday night with tacos and cornhole and bounce houses and baptism. It's going to be an amazing celebration, and I uh, hope the whole church can come together. But more than that, I hope that we would continue to grow in the grace of this whole new way of being human. Will you stand with me? Father, we're so grateful for the life that you've given us in Jesus, that there's been a new exodus amongst your people. You have a new family, a new humanity, and this new uh, thing called the church where we get to live out our baptismal identity with you together. So thank you, Lord, for freeing us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for liberating us and calling us to be your own. Lord, I would pray for those that have not yet followed you into the waters of baptism, whether they've uh, believed in you for a long time or, or are just now starting to hear the promptings of your spirit knocking on the doors of their hearts. Lord, what an amazing gift we would receive in being called to follow you into your death and into your resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church family, as Antioch, would we be people that live in this world as visitors from the future, as inhabitants of an age that is to come, as those who are pursuing reconciliation with you and ourselves and each other and the rest of the world for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.